Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Built by Us. It's Alyssa and Taylor here, and we're joined today by two very special guests, Adrian Kelly and Cheryl Carter, to talk about what it means to them to lead and to be a leader here at our organization, Democracy North Carolina. To start off by introducing our first guest, it is my honor to introduce Adrian Kelly, our interim co-executive director. Adrian entered the nonprofit sector after working for IBM and Hewlett Packard companies and then owning a telecommunication business for two decades. Prior to her current position, she was the chief operations officer for a nonprofit organization in the education industry. And she has volunteered in numerous capacities for Wake County Public Schools and is a strong advocate for public education. Active in grassroots organizations, Adrienne has been a defender of voter education and advocacy, women's rights, and other issues that impact disenfranchised populations. Adrian has a Bachelor's of Arts from Wesleyan University and a Master's of Business Administration from Harvard University. And we're just so glad that you're joining us on the podcast, Adrian. I don't think you've been on an episode yet. And so we're really excited to talk to you and your new role and to just hear all about your experiences. Thanks, Alyssa. Appreciate it. And I'm excited to introduce our second guest, Cheryl Carter, the interim co-executive director, along with Adrian here. Cheryl is a proud alumna of the University of Virginia, Wahua. That's right. Is that right, Cheryl? Wahua? Yes, Wahua. Wahua. <laughs> um, and since moving to North Carolina in 1986, Cheryl has worked in both private and public sectors. Through her work in the public school system and human services over 20 years, she saw the plight of those who were disenfranchised and many times forgotten and dedicated her career to standing for and with the least of these. In 2008, Cheryl was re-energized to engage politically in the healthcare reform movement because of her son's personal experience of being denied coverage. Cheryl has also served as a volunteer peer counselor for the Women's Center in Raleigh. She's also a member and leader of Southern Wake Concerned Citizens, a member of NC Association of Educators, and is on the board of Color for Change. So welcome, Cheryl. Happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Taylor. So happy to be here. Amazing. So we are super excited again to have this conversation with both of y'all about leadership here at DEMNC. And for our listeners, I just wanted to give a little background and context about um, how Cheryl and Adrian came to be our co-interim executive directors. Um, so earlier this year, we found out that Tomas would be leaving the organization in order to move out of state in support of his partner, who was starting her first job as a doctor. So we had to figure out the next step for leadership in our organization. Uh, at the time, all the directors agreed that we should launch a nationwide search for new executive leadership, but that would take some time. Uh, for those of you who've been in these types of situations, it could take a year or more. Um, so we still needed strong direction in the present. So thankfully, our amazing operations and organizing directors here with us today agreed to be that for us. And now we're having a wonderful time in the first few months of Adrian and Cheryl's co-leadership. We are. And... Adrian and Cheryl have actually been at Democracy NC for a very long time now, and I'm personally interested, and I know our listeners would be as well, if each of you would just tell us a bit about how you even came to Democracy NC in the first place. I can, I can get started. Um, so as you mentioned in my bio, I have been an arts and education advocate for some time, and I'm particularly 
care about and I'm interested in the intersection of arts and education. Um, as a sideline, you might have noticed that recently Wake County School Board uh, declared that arts is education. And I'm saying it's about time, folks. <laughs> it also <laughs> took a lot of lobbying with the legislature. I think it's been a couple of years ago now that they um, now do require that high school students take one arts course during their education. So I'm excited about those things. Um, but I was particularly involved in education advocacy for a number of years. I have four children, all who've gone through Wake County Public Schools and been PTA president, advocacy chair, those kinds of things. And our school board in 2009, which previously worked very much in a bipartisan way, basically a number of Republicans were elected and they had very conserv conservative views. Uh, the first action they took was to strike the word diversity from the mission and goals of the, the school board, which was very upsetting for a lot of parents. And so a number of us got together and we started an organization called Great Schools in Wake. And so I was a, a member of that organization for a number of years, still am technically. Um, and uh, during that time, we went to every school board meeting. I spoke out at school board meetings, wrote public comments, LTEs. Uh, we even had Julius Chambers and Reverend Barber come to a meeting and we had sit in at one point. So just a lot of passion about education. And at some point, I decided that I wanted to get involved in education more as a day job, if you will, than what I was doing at the time, which was running a small technology business. And so in 2013, I started doing some consulting, was hired for a 90-day consulting project uh, in finance for an education nonprofit. And actually on the second day that I was there, uh, somebody asked me a question about HR, I said, do you know anything about HR? And I said, sure. And so next thing I know, I was doing HR and finance. And seven months later, that consulting job, which was supposed to be 90 days, turned into a regular job. So I became their chief operating officer. And during that time, I you know, really got a lot of joy, frankly, in improving the infrastructure of that organization. I saved them thousands of dollars over several years and managed a couple multi-million dollar federal and other government grants during that time. And so then in, at the end of 2017, the Democracy North Carolina opportunity came up and I uh, saw that they had a new leader coming on board, which was Tomas Lopez. He started in January, 2018. And I felt like that new leadership meant obviously it was a period of transition. They had just created this new position called operations director. And frankly, when I read the description, I just said, oh my gosh, that's me. You know, it's all the things that I really like to dig into and enjoy was HR, finance, IT. And so, you know, it seemed like a great opportunity for me. And then combine that with the mission of the organization, which really excited me. Um, having seen the nastiness of partisanship that start, you know, in 2009 with the school board and with the state legislature and what's going on in the country in general, I found that a focus in nonpartisanship was very appealing. 
And just in general, I'm somebody who has, you know, voted. I've been in North Carolina for 30 years. I've voted in every election, whether it's presidential, municipal, dog catcher, you name it. I go to the polls because I just think, you know, that's how I was raised. And it's just incredible that um, important that I have my voice heard through voting. And I think, you did you ask why we're still here? <laughs> Um, we've had lots of transition over the, the last three years. And so having the opportunity to further build and improve the infrastructure of the organization and to be at an organization like this and at such a critical time in our state and our country uh, makes me proud to work here and um, working with really talented people. So that keeps it real exciting as well. That's great. I was thinking about how you know you were talking about how you came to nonprofit work as your day job later on, you know, in your career, you've done a lot of other work first. And we talk about how social justice and movement making is a viable career option on this podcast a lot because of the different people we interview. And it's something that we tend to focus on, especially when we're speaking with young folks, um, you know, mm -hmm. that it's like, you know, we would love for you to come on and do this work when you enter the, the working arena. And I think it, I'm excited for you to share your story because you can also make that change at any point in your career. You can come into this space and do movement making as a job whenever you want and your skills will be valued. Uh, and we just, you know, we need as many people as we can get in the work. So definitely appreciate that you're here and that you came from a different, you know, type of work. Absolutely. And, you know, just having volunteered in a lot of different spaces over time, it's, you know, takes people time to find their, you know, the right groove for them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe I had a different path to get here, but glad I made it. For sure. Cheryl, what about you? Ooh, um, I heard a lot of intersections and uh, commonalities that Adrian and I have. And one thing we both have realized, this journey has not been linear. Um, mm -hmm. If I look back 30 years ago, you would have never told me that I would be where I am today. But I am very thankful because as I look back, I'm able to see Everything that I've done up until this point was something that was a building block that brought me here. So, um, so I, I say all of that to say, you know, sometimes we don't need to always question is, you know, going this way or going that way, because just follow your path, follow your passions, and then the rest will just happen. So just to circle back a little bit. So I moved to North Carolina from the West Coast, Los Angeles. I was in uh, Southern California and I moved here in 1986 and began my career here with Wake County Human Services and had an opportunity to, to work with clients determining eligibility around um, food stamps, Medicaid, um, adult and family services, um, what we used to call AFDC, but is now called TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Um, and that work was really critical for me. It allowed me an opportunity um, to really see the ways that people were impacted by policy. 
So that was just part of, of my growing and in, in coming to this work. And then after that, I moved into Wake County school system. Speaking of public schools that Adrian was mentioning, and I started off in a public Montessori school up in Southeast Raleigh. And then shortly after that, I moved out to a more suburban school. And it was really um, interesting to see the differences with that school being placed where it was in Southeast Raleigh. Um, I got to see a lot of the plight of the kids that were from that community. And there were some other people that chose to come there, but the money was not the same. The opportunities were not the same there. When I moved to the school out here in Southern Wake County, it was a huge difference in, in the parents and how they were able to participate in the additional funding that was available through the PTA. So that really speaks a lot to our policies, to the inequities in education. And Adrian, you mentioned like um, being on the PTA. I was on the PTA as well as the legislative and advocacy chair. Imagine that, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> So, um, yes, very, very small world. And so um, during that time when I was teaching, my son was diagnosed with a mental illness and he had to drop out of college. Well, at that time, there was no Affordable Care Act. So when he dropped out, um, he was then denied health care. Well, someone with a mental illness needs therapy. They need treatment. They need their prescriptions filled, all of those things. And it's pretty costly because in this country, we do not treat mental health as we treat other types of illnesses, which is really sad because if your mind is not working, it impacts the rest of your body. So um, I don't wanna get too much of a soapbox about that because I have a lot to say about healthcare and it needing to be a right. Um, but we were able to get legislation passed so that people like my son could, with pre-existing conditions, be covered. And um, after that, I became a field organizer for the Obama campaign in 2012, because prior to that, I volunteered. I was what they call the super volunteer, a stage location director, all of these wonderful titles, but all of that was unpaid. Uh, but in 2012, I was paid as an organizer, um, and I organized in the community where I live, which was really um, a unique situation. And with me being one of their more seasoned, and I don't mean a seasoned organizer with more experience, I mean more seasoned age-wise. Because most of the people that I answered to were probably about 10 to 15 years younger than me, if not more. They probably could have been my children. Um, but anyway, um, it was really a, an awesome opportunity. And that also allowed me to see how we really need to work in this multi-generational environment and ensure no matter you know, what someone's age is, they bring levels of wisdom with them. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Taylor, about people being involved in this work and getting young people involved. And oftentimes, as we, the elders, we do need to listen. And we do need to hear the things that young people are telling, telling us rather than us always trying to think we have all the knowledge. Doesn't mean that we haven't lived a life and we don't have the experiences, but it's a two-way street. 
So getting back to my story, um, after 2012 and 2013, I became the single staffer uh, for OFA when it became a nonpartisan organization. And around 2014, it scaled back in this amazing opportunity, organizing director with Democracy NC. It was there. And as Adrian mentioned, I looked at it and I said, oh my God, this, this was handmade. This is where I need to be. This is the job for me. Because what I learned with the nonpartisan version of OFA, it opened doors to be nonpartisan because you could go in places that oftentimes they're like, no, you can't come into the school. No, you can't really come to our church. No, you can't come this place. But being nonpartisan opened up doors and I was able to go into places. And that's what I really love about Democracy NC because it's not about the individual politicians or what party they represent or who's running this or who's running that. But it's really about the issues, which gets back to the people. So um, I've been here since July 7th of 2014, and I couldn't think of another place that I would want to be. Um, as Adrian mentioned, I've had an opportunity to work with some incredible movement makers. Um, I believe you had Omi Fade, Bernie Scott on a few months ago, and you had a Jamu Dillahunt on. You've had several of our current staff, Desmer Gatewood, Aja Bullock, Linda Sutton, Marquez Thompson. I mean, I just really enjoy this work. I enjoy the people that are part of this organization, um, the various iterations of staff. I am able to take something from everyone that um, is a part of this organization, that touches this organization, and I can't think of another place I'd want to be. I love that story, Cheryl. I love, in general, just hearing stories of like how people have come to Democracy North Carolina, just because like Taylor mentioned, anyone can come to this work at any time. And so we have so many people on our staff with such diverse backgrounds and such diverse work experiences and just life experiences that they've come from in general. And so, yeah, just thank both of you for you know sharing how you came here. Um, and both of you shared kind of like similar some similarities in how you came to the work. And I'm just kind of curious now if there are similar things that have kept you in this work. Like you both knew that that transition to democracy in North Carolina felt right then, but how do you know that it still feels right now? Why are you still here doing this work? Well, it's such a critical time. Oh my gosh. I mean, and there's so much work to do. You know, we, <laughs> we talk about getting to a place where we can really be uh, more proactive in terms of, you know, pushing positive legislation. And it feels like we're, you know, constantly still climbing that hill, trying to get there. There's just so much going on in terms of bad bills that are coming out. You know, there's just so much work to do. And then also, um, you know, COVID has like contributed to the mess <laughs> quite a bit. And, you know, I feel, I feel really good that as an organization, we haven't been completely stalled because of COVID. You know, we are still doing the work and we've gotten creative in terms of how we're touching people, getting, getting the word out and all, but it, it compounds the challenge of, of getting the work done. So, 
you know, I, I guess one thing that keeps me here is I feel like the work is not, we're not done. <laughs> we just have, we have more to do and um, keeps piling on. And so we got to keep digging, shoveling, whatever we're doing, <laughs> you know, we have to keep moving on. And so I think we energize each other in that we have to keep each other energized because there are, there are down times too. But I guess that's what keeps me here. Not done. And I think for me, I just think about the shoulders of the people um, that I stand on from my mother um, who on her own would just organize people in the community. We are from a very small town um, right across the border um, in Virginia. And she would just bring groups of people together and make sure folks were registered. She organized her, her own a group of neighborhood team leaders um, to take action. And um, my godmother was part of the NAACP. My grandmother, many, many moons ago, would register voters. So it's part of my legacy. Um, it is um, just in me. But then I also think about Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and mm -hmm. I.P. Wells and Polly Murray. I mean, it, those women were able to just do incredible work during very um, tense moments. I mean, I think about my mother. I mean, she often was at the school board and she was pushing back, but one of my great uncles was lynched in the downtown area of my small town. So here she was standing up in the 60s and 70s at a time when it was not safe. Um, I can remember a story when my aunt and uncle were driving and my aunt is very fair and um, some men in the community thought she was a white woman with a black man. So they began to chase them. Well, luckily my uncle was able to get word to the sheriff and he basically told him, unless you wanna come pick up some bodies, you better call them off and they did. So I just really think about those stories. I think about that legacy and this work is necessary. We need to be in this work. And if, if they were able to do it in those types of times, we can push through and do it now because if not us, then who? It's so powerful, Cheryl. And it also you know, leads me to something I was gonna ask y'all anyways. What, what does it feel like for y'all to be the heads of this 30 year longstanding, well-known organization as a black woman and a black indigenous woman? One of the things, because um, I guess as an organizer, we love to uh, empower others. So a lot of times when you say the head or the leader, and I recognize the title that comes with, with the position that I'm in, but I also, think about that I'm walking with people. We are walking together. We are in this work together. And yes, I understand that, you know, quote unquote, the buck stops with Adrian and myself, but not really because we do have a board that we answer to. There is that, but it's just so important, you know, for me, you're not going to hear me say lead. I mean, my mother as a child taught us, uh, we do not use the term boss and you all will not hear me say boss because no one is our boss. I'm not your, anybody's boss. Nobody's my boss. Um, 
And I know other people use it, but that's just something my mother instilled in us very young. And so I just don't use that terminology. I think the words we speak and the language that we use is very important to how we operate, how we navigate. So I want people to feel like they are walking with me, that they are with, you know, they, they have an opportunity to reach out if they need me. They can text me, they can slack me. I am not somebody that's up in this ivory tower somewhere that's untouchable, that is infallible, um, and um, that I don't have flaws, that I can't um, have people push back and ask for clarity and all of those types of things. So that's what it really means to me is being in the work with my colleagues. You know, you all know I often call you my family because I do feel like this work is very personal. Um, we're very passionate about it. And, you know, you need to have an, a love and appreciation for the people in this work because it's hard enough to do the work and to deal with all the attacks and to mitigate all the damage without looking at it from a place of love. And so when I do say lead, I might say I'm leading with love. I'm leading with compassion. I'm leading um, in a place with and for and by the people. That's great, Cheryl. And I think, you know, your your comments, I kind of sum things up in talking about the, the humbling experience that it is. Uh, you know, people come to leadership roles in, in different kinds of ways. You have people who run for office, for example. And so obviously actively pursuing some sort of leadership role there. And then sometimes you're called upon to lead. And I think that's the case here is that, you know, for both Cheryl and I, you mentioned earlier, Alyssa, that we've been at the organization for a while, Cheryl for over seven years, me for three and a half years. Um, and, and even at three and a half years, I'm one of the more senior people, not just in terms of age, but in terms of time in the organization. And so um, as the, we have an executive transition committee that's looking at, you know, putting together what the plan is for new leadership, permanent leadership for the organization. And they had to consider, well, what do we do in the meantime? Because we know that's gonna take time. And so, you know, they look to us and yes, this is the first time the organization has been led by women. It is the first time it has been led by black people, Black women in particular, and a BIPOC woman, too. So, I mean, it is, it's historic in some sense. I mean, we were um, white-led for 25 years. Um, most recently, we've had a Latinx leader. Uh, so, it's historic, but it's also what totally made sense. And so, you know, it, while I feel like we were called upon it, not necessarily, at least in my case, not necessarily seeking out this, um, this opportunity and challenge, um, it totally makes sense. And I think that, um, you know, there are many more organizations where it probably totally makes sense that they have black leadership or woman leadership. Um, and so uh, how does it feel? I mentioned it's humbling. I do feel the weight of responsibility for the organization. As, as Cheryl says, the, you know, the buck stops here. You know, we do, we work in teams and we're trying to do more and more collaboration across teams. Um, and there's also a level of excitement. Um, you know, in my case, I'm 
taking on responsibility for development now, which I had not done previously for the organization. And we've had some some transition in that department. And so, you know, there's, again, a need to rebuild and, um, you know, work with folks to to make sure that we end the year um, in a really good note. So I'm um, excited. It, I would say too that the board has, you know, put this trust in in us to do this. And so as an individual, that really makes me feel valued. And that's what I hope I always make folks that I work with um, feel valued in terms of the skills, the talents, the passion that they bring to the organization. I absolutely agree. And I wanted to emphasize something you mentioned, like it just feels right. I personally have been at Democracy NC since 2019, and I've seen both of you all working in your respective roles. And I 100% agree as somebody who's just been in this organization. It just feels right. Both of you all in this position feels right, and it feels natural, and it feels like what should have happened. And I am so grateful to have both of you at the helm of this organization right now. And I feel so confident with you two as leaders, and I'm grateful that you were called upon. So yeah, I just wanted to add that in there. But I wanted to ask you both a question that we ask everyone that really comes on this podcast because we just feel like it's an important question to ask everyone. But I think it kind of takes on a new meaning with you all now leading our organization. But what is both of your personal theory of change? So, you know, I, I, I'm i going to steal. OK, I'm going to steal from someone <laughs> because it's <laughs> it's something that was um you know, shared with me really when I entered the nonprofit sector as a as a um, an employee, and that was from the founder of Communities and Schools, which was the organization that I had worked with, Bill Milliken. And I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but what he says is that programs don't change people, relationships do, and I think that translates perfectly <laughs> to Democracy NC and the work that we do, because it's, it's organizers that talk to citizens. They're working with the people, they're building relationships. It's the folks in our advocacy group that talk to legislators, building relationships there, even comms with the press. And when you think about it, it's, it's not that we have an election protection program it's that we had 2,300 volunteers at 2,300 sites in the 2020 election that were there to help people if they had any problem with their you know, ability, ability to vote and to alert us if there were problems at a, at a given site. So it's really the relationships that help to make change. And I see that all across this organization. And so it's um, while I didn't, you know, create the phrase necessarily, I, I have um, appreciated it and tried to live by that in terms of building relationships with people. I think that gives the opportunity then to um, foster change um, by developing those internal relationships, foster trust, and then enable change um, that may in fact be warranted. The other thing I would say in terms of, and I don't know if this is not necessarily a theory of change, but just having a belief in continuous improvement. 
So we're, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're not there yet, you know, in terms of fixing all the things we have to fix in the organization. We're not there as people individually. We need to continuously improve. Um, Cheryl mentioned, you know, being able to learn from people who are bringing different talents to the organization. So yeah, most of the people I work with are, are certainly um, uh, younger than I am, and I have a lot to learn from from those voices, those different experiences as well. So um, trying to operate from a standpoint of continuously improving myself, my team, my organization um, is also part of my, my thinking when it comes to theory of change. And much like um, what Adrian shared, when I think about theory of change, I think about the people. Um, it really starts from the ground up. And um, I mean, I really love the fact here at DEMNC, when I think about our organizing team, these are people who grew up where they're organizing. These aren't people who were flown in or dropped in, or maybe have only been there a year or two. They grew up in these environments. They know the people there. They know what those communities are like. So when they are pushing and, and fighting for the policies that we deserve, they're doing it from a, place, a per, very personal place, not something that is theoretical or something that, that they don't understand. So from that perspective, we are building um, the work that we do from a ground up approach, then we are adding on, like Adrian said, with the relationships um, that advocacy has with legislators, that advocacy also has with our organizing team. And likewise, communication um, is using that to speak to the legislators, to our advocates, because all of those things together I like to, we used to call it the three-legged stool, but I really think of it more as, as a triple threat. Um, we literally have these three um, teams coming together as a triple threat. And, um, but we, we really are listening to and thinking about the people and how they're up impacted because that's what the change is all about. Um, how we're impacted, what needs to change for the people. Because it's not about elected officials. It's not about corporations, um, despite what some people want to say that corporations are people. No, they're not. Corporations are corporations. People are people. And um, it is so important that the, what Adrian talked about, that relationship building. Because if you aren't building that trust, if you aren't building those beliefs and those common interests, it is hard to move together to impact change. So you have to build that trust, come together around common interests, and then you can work on the things that matter. And what you'll find is everybody may not have that same entry point or that same point um, focus or interest, but when you come together and you find that intersectionality within your work, within your purpose, then you're able to move together and work together and bring about change. I often think about Linda and how 
she often brings in people from other organizations to her um, monthly meeting that she has with her advocates because she realizes, yes, voting is an integral piece and is a strategy in liberation, but we have to look at other issues that are impacting people and connecting it to voting because so often, you know, people just think about, well, I'm not making enough money. I'm not able to feed my family. And they often don't make that extra connection or they're so lost in what's happening that they can't see that it's maybe their um, city council or their mayor or a legislator or other things that are impacting them. So it is so critical that we are building those relationships making those connections and working intersectionally so that we can bring about change. I feel like you just tied so many things together from this conversation that we've had so far, Cheryl, with thinking about how the work that we do is with, you know, the people at large and just everyone who lives in North Carolina and that the the way that y'all and we on staff you know, approach our work and how we've come to the work, it, it all feels connected in the same, right? So Adrian, earlier you mentioned how joining a nonpartisan organization felt right because the partisan nature of well, how everything has become partisan has been very frustrating and difficult to work on things and feel like you're moving anything forward. And that creates, um, I think that's something that I've talked about on the podcast before is how I feel that being nonpartisan creates um a baseline of trust between us and the community and us and the people that we're working with. And so I was thinking about that when you were just talking, Cheryl, about how you want to build those relationships and build trust with community members so we can start with that nonpartisan baseline there, but come together with the people with our common interests together. And I was also thinking about how that ties together with the fact that y'all both came into the space from other issues, right? Like arts right. and arts and education or education and healthcare, you know, that those those issues aren't voting rights in themselves. Mm -hmm. But we all understand that having a government that is representative of us and listens to us um, leads to us getting the change that we need on those different issues. So I just wanted to say that because all those things tie together in the ways that we do our work, the reasons we're doing our work and how we can, you know, properly work with anyone um, that we meet when we're out in the regions. Well done. Yes, that was, <laughs> you did tie a bow around it. Ooh. Thanks, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so something else that we wanted to ask y'all um, whether you're in these these day-to-day -day moments of now leading this, honestly, we're a large organization right now. There's a lot of people um, that are on staff and a lot of advocates that we work with um, in communities. So whether just in those day-to-day -day moments or maybe in situations when you're having to make some difficult decisions, um, what, what are the things that y'all keep in mind um, to make sure that you're leading in the way that you want to lead? Yeah, I would say... Um... What I try to always make myself approach a situation, um, how I might approach situations, or just uh, whether it's day to day or um, you know a challenging uh, situation, 
may emerge um, is to try to think of um, doing, making sure I do a few things. The first and maybe most important is listening. Mm -hmm. It's listening to the whoever, it might be one person, it might be multiple people if there's some sort of um, conflict or challenge among people, but to really listen and in listening, um, one has to try to put themselves in the other person's shoes. So hearing things from another person's vantage point, you're familiar with active listening, you know, perhaps repeating back, this is what I thought I heard, that kind of thing. Secondly, I would say is um, empathizing. You know, again, that's kind of putting yourself in someone's shoes, but you know, you may have, we may have come at things from like totally different points and I need to, as, as a quote unquote leader in the organization, I need to think about, you know, really empathizing with someone in terms of where they're coming from. Um, and then based on whatever that information is, um, I might need to adjust, adjust my thinking, mm -hmm. you know, um, I might coming in thinking, Hey, I know the answer of something and yep, this is the way I want to go. But then when I hear from um, others, okay, do I need to make an adjustment? Or no, was I on the right course initially? Um, and then I think what's important is, you know, we've got to make decisions. So being, you know, decisive um, in terms of what are that, whatever that outcome um, should be. But I also don't think that's the end of something because I think it's also important to whether I'm just doing it in my head or I'm doing it with someone or I'm doing it in writing or just verbally is kind of debriefing. So going back and looking at, you know, so here's something that presented itself. Here's how we walked through it. What were the, the options or the challenges? Um, what, how do we determine we wanted to act or how did I determine I was going to act? make a decision and, and, you know, just kind of flow through that. So, so I think, you know, that's, that's really important um, for, for me in terms of how I approach leading in situations. The other thing I would say is that I recognize that anyone at any, if you want to say at any level in the organization or at any, we've talked about age a lot here, I wonder why, <laughs> or at any age um, can, can be a leader and people can lead in a particular activity. You might be a leader in one thing and you're not necessarily a leader in another. Um, and I think as a leader, it's important to give others the opportunity to lead. Um, and some might call that leading from behind. I think, uh, I think Obama got some flack for, you know, people were saying, oh, he's leading from behind, meaning he wasn't leading. But if you're giving people an opportunity to step out in front, I think that's, I think that's a good characteristic of a leader to let other people, you know, shine or, or just, you know, take, take the, take the helm at a, at a, particular for a particular thing. And so I've tried to do that. I mean, um, some examples um, that we've done in the organization, for, for example, are um, an employee who had a particular skill with um, Google Sheets and created our Q3, Q4 work plan document that all of us can use, but allowing that person to, you know, 
get out there and create this document that, that folks can use. Or, um, you know, our HR uh, Demency Digest now, you know, our HR associate really has, you know, full-throated responsibility to put that together each month. And while I, you know, give ideas for content, um, she's writing it, you know, and she's getting it out there. And so I think it's important to give people those kinds of opportunities. And I am, I've always been equally, I was gonna say equally comfortable. Maybe I'm, I'm more comfortable leading from, <laughs> leading from behind sometimes, but, you know, I feel like I can go, I can do either. You know, I've followed some really good leaders and I've led in a number of, um, you know, organizations, other organizations besides this one. Um, and um, both of those can be very rewarding um, experiences. That's great, Adrian. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember that quite often when they used to talk about President Obama and leading from behind. That was just one of many things. I think about um, him and community organizer as well. And, yeah. just look at, and, and just look at that. But anyway, uh, I digress. You know, there's a lot that I think about. I think the word leading leader is kind of antithetical or uh, to how I think and how I operate. But again, I do recognize um, the responsibility. So when I am, you know, making decisions and thinking about things. You know, I just think about um, this organization, um, the evolution of this organization, and I keep in mind um, the people and particularly the impacts on um, black and brown people and BIPOC people, because at the end of the day, so many of the policies that we are working around and that we are doing um, impact uh, BIPOC people in marginalized communities. So, you know, I go in, you know, with a racial equity lens and with um, an equity lens, because while we know that the basis of equity is built upon white supremacy, which um, race is a huge factor, there are also many other um, things that we have to consider when we think about equity. So I like to, you know, think about those different things, think about the identities, because we all walk with multiple identities. It just so happens that our skin color is what people see first, but right. that doesn't mean that's the only thing that makes us up um, and makes us into who we are. So it's important um, as I'm thinking through and making decisions that I consider all of that and I do bring, um, you know, what I've learned, whether it's professional, whether it's personal. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I had somebody recently tell me, you know, sometimes you're a little cautious um, with your decisions. You take your time. I've never thought about myself as necessarily being overly cautious, but I think it is quite a responsibility. We have a staff of 25 folks, um, give or take. And plus, when you think about our organizing assistance, when we add contractors, Democracy Summer, you know, we're talking upwards of 40 people or more. And this entire state of 100 counties, that is a lot of responsibility. Um, thinking about the legacy, we're about to celebrate our 30th year anniversary. 
Um, this will be the 23rd year of Democracy Summer coming up in 2022. And just thinking about all of that weight um, on us and on our shoulders. So there are times that, you know, we can't always move fast. Decisions can't always, you know, come quickly, but putting that thought and um, empathy and um, just navigating all of those things as I think about us being multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, um, and other um, gender non-conforming, non-binary, neurodivergent. There are just so many things that make us up um, into who we are. And you know, we're not just robots, we are people. Um, the policies that we work on impact us. So I know that sounds like a lot, but it does take that. And I think those are the things that wake me up three o'clock in the morning. Um, and when, when I am awakened like that, I will, yes, I keep a whiteboard in my bedroom. I know that's not a good thing, but it's been there since we moved into this house. And when I get those, um, epiphanies in the, um, you know, early in the morning, yes, 3, 3 a.m., um, I have to get up and jot them down because I know that by the time I wake up, I may not recall. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was such a great idea. What was that I was thinking about? And then there's sometimes I have these amazing dreams and I like to jot those down too. So, um, so yes, it, it is, it is quite a weight, but I'm also up to the challenge. Um, as um, Adrian mentioned and Alyssa mentioned as well, you know, we were called upon, but I believe we were definitely ready. And, um, and Adrian and I probably talk four, five, 10 times a day. Um, and, and, and that's okay. And we recognize that, but we also try to respect one another's boundaries. And I try to respect the boundaries of staff as well. Even though I'm one of those people, you know, I react, I get really excited, I get pumped up, but I have to calm myself down because I can't reach out to somebody at midnight. I mean, I stay up pretty late. Sometimes I work pretty late, but I don't want to um, put that on other people because the wonderful thing is Adrian's an early riser, I'm not. And we've learned how to, to uh, coexist and to compromise around that as well. So um, those are just a few of the things um, that go into decision-making and, you know, it is a lot. I was gonna um, say earlier that, um, I forget which question it was, but about us coming into this position and um, sort of the, it, it sort of organically, you know, we talked about it making sense and um, we, we have complementary skill sets with Cheryl coming from the organizing program side and me coming from more of the operations side. So I think together, you know, we we can fill the void, if you will. But um, just her last few comments about the, you know, me being the early morning and, you know, I, I probably shouldn't admit I was here at 6.30 the other day, AM, um, <laughs> uh, just to get going on things. And, you know, Cheryl would, you know, likes to would call me like four o'clock in the afternoon and I am like so beat by then. <laughs> but but we've worked it out, as she said, in terms of both respecting each other's boundaries and, you know, getting in touch when we need to. 
And um, I'm cracking up with her talking about the, the whiteboard because I too have those <laughs> ideas or thoughts or, oh, I need to remember this in the middle of the night. And maybe I need a whiteboard because I tend to just like say it over and over and over in my head. And uh, so that I can keep it, you know, until 630 in the morning. Uh, so, but I don't think my husband will let me put a whiteboard in the bedroom. <laughs> I think he would shoot me. Oh gosh. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's been a joy. <laughs> I do that too. The repeating in my head and then it keeps me up. So it's like, that's not worth it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor and I actually talked about this once and I told her about, I do this thing where if I have like a random thought that comes to me in the middle of the night. I usually like don't want to get out of bed or like have a whiteboard near me. So I'll just like grab something that's around me and I'll like throw it in the middle of my floor. So maybe I'll like grab a water bottle and just leave it in the middle of my floor. And then I'll wake up and be like, why is this here? And I'll be like, oh, I threw that there because I wanted to remember this. And it helps me trigger it. (laughs) That is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're associating an action with a thought. Yeah. So that's what I do. (laughs) That's hilarious. But I love how... Um, you mentioned outright, Adrian, how like, you know, Cheryl, you were talking about how y'all make a great team because of your work styles. And Adrian, you mentioned how you make a great team because of the different sides of the organization that um, you keep in mind. And I'm, I'm glad that both of y'all said that, you know, stated that because I, I don't think we said that earlier on in the, in the episode about how, you know, it's not just that y'all are longstanding directors in the organization. And that's why, you know, your interim co-directors right now, it's that you, you complement each other with the fact that you have these different perspectives of the work and we need both of those in order to keep going. Mm. I was going to say something that I really appreciated from both of you all was kind of just the accessibility of your approach to leadership and being leaders. I really, you know, both of you all mentioned, you know, anyone can be a leader. And as somebody who studies leadership education, I think that's very true. And I think that's also something that we not only hold as like a value here at Democracy North Carolina, but we actively live into through, you know, like empowering our citizens and equipping our communities with the resources they need to succeed. Like we believe that everyone can be a leader in their communities and wherever they are respectively. And so I really appreciated that. And then also just listening to, you know, Adrian and both Cheryl share, you know, kind of the things they do Um, keep in mind active listening, empathy, being cautious, you know, like these aren't exactly things that are these difficult, you know, only executive skills, but they're really just keys in being authentic and being authentic leaders. And I think authentic leadership is really important, especially in this work, you know, you lead how you live. Shout out Brene Brown. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I just really appreciated hearing, hearing y'all's perspective on that. Yeah. And that, I think as a staff person, something that I need from y'all as leaders is your decision-making, right? Like I need to feel like I'm getting direction from y'all and that I trust it and that I'm ready to move forward with it. And, you know, what Alyssa just mentioned that y'all talked a lot about listening and Cheryl, you talking about your equity lens, the fact that we know you lead that way, you know, you make it clear and you're telling us right now, but that that allows myself and I know the other staff to have trust in your decision-making, right? That we know why you're making the decisions you're making because you lead this way. So we'll never be, you know, wanting for a different decision or worried about your decisions because of the way that you make them. So I just also wanted to point that out. So I just want (laughs) to 
not push back, but just comment on that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will agree with sure. decisions that we make. Sure. But I think having gone through the process of, of whether listening or just being transparent as in terms of why we came to a conclusion that we did, you know, doesn't mean folks will necessarily be happy, but at least they will understand and hopefully respect that, you know, we did go through that process. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and I think for me, it also, having watched Bob and Tomas um, as the former executive directors, I learned a lot from them and the processes that they went through. And I mean, it's not easy um, because um, people are going to second guess you. They're going to wonder why you did this. Is it because you like this person better or that situation better or whatever? But if folks understand um, that it is coming from a true place of, of care about this organization, care about the people who make up um, the organization, and that we do consider so many factors. And at the end of the day, a decision has to be made. And it's not going to always go this way or that way, but the decision has to be made. We do have a hierarchy here, even though often we do allow a lot of feedback, we do allow input. But again, decisions do have to be made, things have to be done. Um, but we try to do as much as we can to listen, to take into consideration what we hear. Um, from everybody across the board. Absolutely. Well, I think that was the end of our questions um, that we had for you all, but there is one last thing that we just wanted to ask you all, and that's if there's anything that you want the supporters of Democracy North Carolina to know. Any final words that you want to leave our listeners with? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I, I'll just say, you know, personal appreciation for this organization, what it stands for, our mission in terms of how we are trying to affect the um, electoral landscape, how we are trying to connect people from you know, the issues that are on the ground issues to the reason why they need to be at the ballot box um, and that we are, you know, really trying to reach out to those folks in particular who have been left out in the past, Black and Brown people, Indigenous people. Um, you know, I really appreciate that we're in an organization that we're doing that work outside, but we're also reflecting on ourselves and having to do the work inside. And we, you know, we're all at different places and have a ways to go. I've learned a lot being here. Um, you know, in the corporations I worked for, <laughs> totally <laughs> racial equity was like, it's not in the plan, folks. <laughs> and even in the last organization I was in, which was heavily 90% Black people, we really weren't having these conversations. And so I think that you know, it's something I really honor about Democracy North Carolina that we are walking the talk and and evaluating ourselves as we also go out into the world and you know try to make this difference that we're trying to make so glad to be here <laughs> yes and i definitely echo what um adrian just shared i think just um 
leaving with our listeners that we cannot do this without them. While, you know, we, we are focused and laser focused on this work and, you know, we put in 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours a week to it. We, we just cannot bring about the change and do the things we do without them being involved, without them, you know, hearing the call, without us making the ask of them and them making that commitment, whether they make the commitment of time or they make a commitment of a donation because um, we need both because we are, as we say, a nonprofit and it does require money because as I was mentioning earlier, at one point I was volunteering eight to 12 hours a day. And I know there are a lot of people out there that do that as well, but it really does make a difference when we are honoring and paying people for this work because change is not easy. Um, Doing the work that we do is not easy. And at the end of the day, we all have to live. We all have bills that need to be paid. So it does require money as much as, you know, some of us may have a anti-capitalist viewpoint or other viewpoints at the end of the day, that is the society that we're in. So um, if you can just stay engaged, stay involved, um, go to our website, democracync.org, follow us on our social media platforms, attend the local meetings in your communities and stay up to date. And please, when you get the emails from us, take the action because our elected officials are listening. So those are the things that we need you to do. And if you just don't have the time, if you have a dollar, $5, $10, whatever it is that you can commit to, that helps us, whether it's a piece of material, whether it's our Democracy Summer students. You see Alyssa, she's been here with us for several years as a college student and has done a tremendous amount of work for us. And we so appreciate her, but we couldn't have her here if we didn't have the funds to take care of that. So um, I'm not a development director, but I will do it when I need to. I make that ask. So I'm making the ask of your time commitment and any donations that you can make to the organization because it does make a difference. This work is not easy and we need you and in whatever way that you can join us. Yes, we love ending on a call to action. We need all of you to make this work happen. Well, Cheryl, Adrian, thank you both so much for being here today. Taylor and I really appreciated the opportunity to just sit down and talk with both of you all about your experiences and your perspective on this new journey you're on. So just thank you so much for being here. I know our supporters will also appreciate it. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for leading with us in creating a North Carolina that's built by us. And thanks for listening to this podcast of, by, and for the people. Connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DemocracyNC. Or you can visit our website at democracync.org.